Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The cash just kept piling up. And what are you going to do when it becomes normal for you to walk around every day with five grand in your wallet with the goal of spending it? It got to the point where we had maybe $5 million in surplus money. But Larry, you know, it was like it's time to start laundering this money. And he wasn't sure how he was going to do it. None of us, we weren't professional criminals, although we were. So Larry decides he's going to try and and go to a bank and see if he can wash 500 grand. So he puts 500 grand in a suitcase and he walks into the branch and goes up to uh, one of the, the women sitting at a desk there and says, I'd like to see the president of the bank. And she was like, well, do you have an appointment? And Larry says, no, but I got this. And he opens the briefcase and flashes the 500 grand. And so she gets all flustered and says, okay, well, uh, have a seat over there, just a moment. So Larry goes in and sits down. The bank president's like, well, can I help you? And he opens it up and says, yeah, I have a source for income. It's about this much every month, and I need some way to finance it, somewhere to put it. Can you help me? And the guy moved back in his seat and took a long breath and looked at the cash and looked at Larry and looked at the cash, looked at Larry and said, I've got someone that you should meet that can help you with this. I'm Steve Seidel. This is Wolves Among Us, Episode 3, The Tale. You almost become indifferent to money after a while. If you're not spending $1,000 a day, you're really not living up to your potential. Larry had this goal of segueing out of drug dealing. Everyone that's been busted so far, I've been able to control and there hasn't been consequences. By 1981, Larry was making about $100,000 a month while finishing his last year of dental school. He and his longtime girlfriend were engaged as Larry prepared to open his own dental practice immediately after graduation. In the meantime, Larry was the reigning king of cocaine in Philadelphia at the age of 26. He had a team of partners, clients, and runners forming one of the largest cocaine enterprises in the Northeast. Willie Harcourt, who we met last episode, was a big part of Larry's meteoric rise. So our business just exploded. I delivered probably a thousand kilos 
from Miami to Philadelphia, and then throughout another 10 states or so. I mean, you're talking about kids in their 20s in Philadelphia, you know, with sacks full of money and bags full of cocaine. And at that time, disco was just coming to an end and punk rock was coming in, the club scene was crazy, and everybody wanted cocaine. And I mean, everybody wanted cocaine. So our customers went anywhere from dealers, city councilmen, lawyers, stockbrokers, you know, so it wasn't just deadbeats and partiers doing it. The cocaine, you might recall, it made the cover of Time magazine asking the question, is this the next wonder drug? And things were going great. We were making bundles, boatloads of cash, hundreds of thousands a month. And uh, man, I was running that thing just like a Swiss clock. It, it was doing great. You almost become, at least I did, and most of the guys at the top, become indifferent to money after a while. If you're not spending $1,000 a day, you're really not living up to your potential. Larry was living it up. His cocaine business was well-organized, and he trusted his partners and associates. But one day, Larry was meeting with someone in his apartment, someone he didn't know very well. They were doing a deal when one of Larry's friends walked in, unannounced. A friend of mine comes in and says, you know, hey, Larry, I've got what I owe you. And um, he opens up a bag and pours out 60000 Now, you know, think of this guy who just sees $60,000 worth of cash there. The guy who Larry didn't really know and didn't trust had just seen an impressive amount of cash dropped casually in Larry's apartment. So I knew this was an error, and I scoop up the money and, and finish my business with the guy. Well, it's a short time after this that I come home from a Flyers game, and I come in from this game. It was a playoff game, I remember, and I walk through the door, and we're in my apartment, and someone rings the bell and says, hey, there's been an accident out here. Someone ran into a Volvo. I go to open the door, here comes two guns down in the door. So I throw my shoulder against it, and I have their guns pinned by the door, and L.A. comes running out, and by this time, there's two of them, and they push against the door so much it throws me back in L.A.'s face at him, and he gets hit with a gun in the head and knocked down. And um, I jump on that guy, and someone hits me in the back of the head with a gun. And I uh, wake up, and I'm pissed, and I think I used to be maybe a little more arrogant, and I'm just, like, telling these guys, listen, I know who you are. You got to get the fuck out of here right now, you know? And the guy comes over and goes to tap me with a gun, and it goes off. So this scares them in that they think, you know, someone's heard this and they've got to get out of there. So they run out of there, but they lock me in the apartment. They take my keys and lock me in the apartment. <laughs> so I jump up knowing someone's going to come. This has been a scene. You know, you don't hear a gunshot like this. I'm sure neighbors have. So I run. I have this desk. I have this desk that I really love. This was old antique desk that used to have a typewriter underneath it and it had lockable drawers. And uh, they've taken my keys. And the top drawer I had nothing but hundreds. The next one fifties, next one twenty, and next one's ten. They only cleaned out like a couple of those drawers and left the other ones. You know, so I'm real quick like throwing that money into something, and then I open this other drawer and there's a pound of cocaine, and the police show up to my door, <laughs> and uh, they're in there and you know going over everything. And I always remember the policeman's filling out a report, and he, he says, I, I see they stole your Sony TV, and I'm looking, no, it's right there. He says, yeah, they stole your Sony TV, and I, you know, this is how Philadelphia is, you know, and uh, he's getting me to pad an insurance claim or something. And of course, you know, I, I hand him $100 or something, you know, for taking care of that, but he's really missed what's really happened here, you know, and I just want them out of there as soon as I can. 
Nobody was more disturbed by the armed robbery than Larry's soon-to-be wife. Larry asked us not to include her real name in this podcast, so we're going to call her Jane. She and Larry had been together since their undergrad days at Penn. They were supposed to be married in a few months, and she was losing patience with the volatility that came with the dark side of Larry's dual life. She was really begging me to get done with this. She really didn't want these people intruding on our life. She didn't approve of, you know, she's studying to be a physical therapist. And, uh, and you know, I had other people that weren't, I guess, the most savory types is the best way to put it. You know, obviously, she would have preferred that I got right out of after that robbery. I mean, it was, it was logical. What would anyone rational think about at the time? Someone's invaded your house, possibly could have killed your husband-to-be. I knew I had to get out after this event happened, but it wasn't like I thought I had to get out of it this month. Larry had this goal of segueing out of drug dealing and living a legitimate life. This is Mark Bowden, the author of over a dozen books, including Black Hawk Down, Killing Pablo, and the first book on Larry Levin, Dr. Dealer. The criteria for achieving that for Larry had always been having enough money to live a very comfortable professional life as a dentist. That was how he imagined doing it. In part, Larry agreed with his wife. It was time to get out, and he decided to transition to a more hands-off role. He diverted his energy to a separate issue, the mountains of cash sitting around his apartment. He needed to inject that cash into a real business, and he didn't want to simply launder money. He wanted to make good investments. But Larry had no experience, so he needed a partner to help shepherd his money. Anyone who's making millions of dollars illegally eventually runs into the problem of what to do with all that money. It's hard to just deposit it in a bank. You want to find ways to legitimize having all this cash. So now you're, you begin dealing at a whole new level of criminality. And the guy who Larry latched onto was a fellow named Mark Stewart. At the top of this episode, Willie Harcourt told us a story about Larry going to the bank with $500,000. According to Willie, the bank president introduced Larry to someone who'd be able to help him manage all that cash. That someone was Mark Stewart. Mark Stewart was older than Larry. He was flashy. He liked to show off expensive things, drive expensive cars. He had suits made for him, wore jewelry. Uh, he was someone who advertised the fact that he was very successful. Larry was, by personality, a lot more low-key. He wasn't someone who ostentatiously threw money around, both by inclination and also because he was smart enough to realize that that would attract unwanted attention. You know, what Mark Stewart saw in Larry Lavin was a deep well of cash. Mark was a slippery operator, and he always had ideas for how to spend somebody else's money to make more money. And the idea was that Larry could provide the cash and Mark would run these businesses and earn a profit and basically feed the money cleaned back to Larry so that he could buy a bigger house. So you got a picture of Mark Stewart. Here's this guy who uh, was teaching real estate at Temple. He has built a few buildings in Philly, but he knows everyone. He knows people in the government and 
he starts talking to me that cash is so important that he can do a lot with it. For instance, put a second mortgage on a building in Atlantic City and eventually become the primary position to pay off the other mortgage and acquire this building and all different concepts he has. Mark brought Larry into several different business ventures and created a company called Larmark, combining both their first names, Larry and Mark. At first, Larry functioned solely as an investor, but he had a specific financial need. So I go and meet with him and tell him, listen, what I really want is a payroll check. I want to be able to go buy a house sometime or buy a nice car without someone questioning me. And I'm a student, you know, and, uh, and he can easily write me payroll checks all the time. But he really, really would like to buy this other company in Philadelphia. It's called WMOT Records. So WMOT Records has a few singers, but they have a large catalog of the Philly Sound songs. They've managed to acquire a lot of these things. We buy them out. We incorporate them into our business, and I put up the money. I can't remember how much, but, you know, maybe a million dollars or something. And WMOT Records starts selling albums. So that's what's going on in the record company. So I start drawing a payroll check for $70,000. And if I want to buy a car, I don't any longer have to go in and pay cash. Typically, when you launder money, you want to keep a low profile. Your business doesn't even need to be profitable. So to be honest, a record label is probably a good bet if you don't care about making money. I mean, what are the odds you make a hit record? Slim to none, right? At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the 1970s, Congress passed something called the Bank Secrecy Act, which said that any deposits over $10,000 would be reported to the federal government by your bank or credit union. In the early days, when Larry was making less money, he would simply make frequent deposits of amounts less than 10 grand. But now that he was making millions, that just wasn't feasible. He needed a better, more sophisticated way to deal with his fortune. We've had to find a way to launder the money. You can't keep putting more than $10,000 in the bank without a trigger going off in the bank notifying the feds. 
but he wanted to make some investments. Just to jog your memory, this is Carol Salim, the author of Dr. Snow. In no time at all, Mark knew exactly where the money was coming from. So Larry gave him initially $500,000. One of the companies that Mark was most excited about purchasing was WMOT. It sounds like a radio station, but WMOT is actually an acronym for We Men of Talent. It was a struggling record company based out of Philly. But that wasn't the only business Mark was interested in. He was a fountain of ideas when it came to investing Larry's money. They had a number of businesses. They had a celebrity limousine company, bought some real estate. From its opening in 1920 to the declining years in the late 60s and 70s, it was the city's best known and most visited sports complex. Ice shows, hockey, wrestling, circuses, rodeos, roller derby, and even a bullfight or two. Plus concerts by performers including Elvis Presley were promoted here. During the course of Eventually they bought an old arena so they had a lot of holdings, and Larry was on the payroll, as were some of his other partners. And so the association with Mark Stewart was critical to Larry being able to launder his money and have an excuse to tell people why he could, as the dental student, buy a beautiful house, drive a fancy car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In addition to real estate, they also made less conventional investments. They bought a minor league basketball team called the Philadelphia Kings, coached by 76ers legend Hal Greer. They even funded boxers and their managers. Ultimately, the Kings were a bust, but the same could not be said for the boxers. Hey everybody, this is Terrible Tim Witherspoon, your former two-time heavyweight champion of the world and the real Rocky Balboa. If you're a boxing fan, then Tim Witherspoon requires no introduction. He is the two-time heavyweight champion of the world and frequent sparring partner with Muhammad Ali. Prior to boxing, Tim was a security guard at a hospital after enduring a bad neck injury which ended his college football career. But he couldn't suppress that competitive drive, so he joined a boxing gym in Philly. And there was a trainer at that gym who was on Larry and Mark's payroll. His name was Slim Robinson. Slim would come in the gym and I noticed him looking at me and my brother all the time. And I know he was trying to get close to us. And Slim was looking at me and was selling people that, whoa, he's this guy, if he get the right people behind him, he could do something. He knew Mark Stewart and they contacted Mark Stewart and we had a meeting. We went to the meeting and everything was glamorous. Everything was, Mark Stewart talked it like a real good, sharp businessman. He didn't play around. I was happy we had somebody and we had one of the best trainers in the world. Slim was one of the best trainers in the world. And everything was good. So uh, we in the room and Mark was saying things like, hey, I can help you. We're going to do this. But the first impression I got was this guy is a wealthy guy and that he's very intelligent. He let us know that he was going to be behind us and we we're going to be rich. And that was it. The gym where Tim and the other boxers trained was in the same building as WMOT Records, a building that Mark and Larry had purchased. When I used to go into the office or when I used to say hi to some of the people there, I come all the time, they keep doing this. They keep doing this and stuff in the, in the office. So me and the boxers were like, wow, they must be snorting that cocaine and stuff. We thought that because everybody on this all the time. And you could tell the behavior that something's going on. 
So we had like four or five boxers eventually, you know, after I moved in. And we would operate from there. We would go to the gym. We would train. Um, we would also see the musicians, Captain Sky, uh, Brandy Wells. You seen the Fat Larry's band. They coming through there. You seen a lot of music people stayed there too. It was around this time that an obscure Philadelphia musician appeared in the halls of Mark and Larry's building. His name was Frankie Smith. Frankie Smith was this songwriter and producer. I first met him when I worked at Philadelphia International Records. We were both staff writers and producers. That's Bill Bloom, veteran producer, songwriter, and Philadelphia native. Bill Bloom and Frankie Smith met while working at a company called Philadelphia International Records. He and I started collaborating on some songs, and that's how we connected. And then around that time, things got tight in the music business, and Frankie and I were actually laid off, if you call it that, from Philadelphia International Records. And we were together when we approached WMOT about doing a project with them. Frankie actually had an idea for a song, and he had wanted to do something with that song. While Frankie and Bill were a little down on their luck, WMOT gave them a shot to record a new song. They allowed the duo to use leftover studio time of Fat Larry's band, a more accomplished WMOT group. So initially, we went to their session, and at the end of their session, we had time to record a drum track, and we actually got Fat Larry to record the drum track for us. And when we were working on this song, the idea was that we really wanted to like connect with the kids in Philadelphia and pay homage to Double Dutch, the jump rope game, which was also popular in Philadelphia. And we started out recording a totally new song from scratch. I think by the third week when we had recorded the bass track, they liked what they were hearing well enough that they gave us time to go in and do our thing. So yeah, we went to the studio. We literally, we made it up as we went along. We ended up with a very long track. We cut it in half, and one side we called Double Dutch Bus, and one side we called Double Dutch. WMOT had created a runaway hit. It reached number one on the Hot Soul singles for Billboard and broke into the Billboard's top 100 at number 30. Larry's team hustled to have the song promoted in all of the major radio markets. And in 1981, it was the song of the summer. But the song was much more than just popular. It was revolutionary. It had an enormous impact on music in the early 80s and going forward. I heard the Double Dutch Bus, and like most kids in the in the early 80s, you know, fell in love with it as a kid. It was an anthem that summer and, you know, for, for quite a while after. This is Jay Kwan, the official historian for the Hip Hop Museum in D.C. and member of the curatorial board for the Universal Hip Hop Museum in the Bronx. The thing that intrigued me about Frankie Smith was just the fact that this guy had this smash record. It wasn't a rap record, but he toured with the rappers. And what he did was in the vein of rap. It was a little different, but it was the spoken word and a little pig Latin. Now, again, pig Latin was just something in the streets. It was just a slang and a way people manipulated words. But 
I would say he resurrected it. It was something that was, it was he resurrected it and he brought it into music. You know, I'd never heard anybody do Pig Latin on a record before, and he was probably the first one to do it. I dare say he was. 20 years later, people like Snoop Dogg and Missy are sampling his music and using his style, but we know nothing about him as a person. It was quite influential. And, you know, the thing about most uh, classics, you know, today we kind of deem things instantly as a classic. And I don't agree with that. I think a classic can only be deemed as such after it's measured a few decades after its release. So I would dare say that, you know, today is just as important as it was, you know, when it was released 40 years ago. As Double Dutch Bus's popularity soared, Frankie Smith was invited to appear on American Bandstand with another Philadelphia music legend, Dick Clark. You spent some time at Philadelphia International Records before you moved to your label now, which is, we should mention them, give them equal time. Oh, WMOT. Thanks to them, I'm here now. Once again, Frankie Smith. In the span of a couple years, Mark and Larry had somewhat accidentally planted their flag as major curators of culture in Philadelphia. They had a big arena, a basketball team, they shuttled celebrities around in limousines, sponsored prize fighters, and helped launch a genre that would change music forever. Those who were along for the ride were happy with the success they were having, but they didn't know that the whole operation was built on a rocky foundation. Slim was one of the main guys that was guiding us. And during that time, I was confident with him. But in terms of uh, management and promotions, I had no clue. All I wanted to do was push forward and be successful. Like every time it was a financial situation, we never had no problems. And I never thought about anything negative or anything else. I just figured that Mark Stewart had connections in the music and that that's where the money was coming from. I used to see Larry coming in all the time and never... He, I thought he had something to do with the music, maybe. I never really figured out his position, but he would just come and everybody would respect him, say hi and stuff, say really nice to the boxers, nice to me. But then there was a sudden shift in attitude coming from Mark Stewart. We were doing good, we was winning fights, and all of a sudden, Mark Stewart called us into his office and said, I'm going to hook you guys up with Don King. He's the next best thing that's going to help you get there. Yes, that Don King. The famous flamboyant boxing manager whose roster included Muhammad Ali, Larry Holmes, Iron Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, and before it was all said and done, Tim Witherspoon. And I said, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go with him. And my brother was like, no, I don't want to go. And I said, why he wanted us to go with Don King and stuff like that? Why would he do that? When he know we're going full steam ahead, doing really good, why would he do something like that? And so, yeah, he something was wrong. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. In May of 1981, months after the release of Double Dutch Bus, Larry Lavin graduated from dental school. He and his newly wedded wife had purchased a stately home in the upscale Philadelphia neighborhood of Devon. But Larry wouldn't receive his license to practice dentistry for another three months. So he had some time to kill. Here's Billy South Philly. I meet him one day and he says to me, uh, he's waiting for his dental license. I said, what are you doing? He said, no, I'm going to go sit on the stock exchange. I said, you're allowed to do that? He says, yeah, I got my license. At 26 years old, he purchased two seats on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange and lived the high life a little while longer. I've been to a few parties. Uh, I guess, and uh, some dinners. So I really can't speak what it was like for them. I remember the first time they uh, made a platinum record with the double Dutch bus. And uh, they were like little kids with fresh money, you know, buying neat shit. Larry used to keep telling me that Larry had this thing about investing his money. So he was buying properties and deals and Timmy Witherspoon and Celebrity Limousine Service. So they were pretty happy when he was getting checks so he could probably live better. Parties were wild. And I remember one time I walked in, like, I'm on the beach eating fucking White House hoagies and I'm trying to get Larry to come downstairs and he's trying to invite me upstairs in a Playboy casino to join him. And I walk in this room and uh, a lot of coke, Dom Perignon, caviar. I fucking never ate caviar. I didn't know, you know, much about that. And, they're all running around naked, holding hands with these fucking working girls going in rooms, you know, all coked up. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Come on, let's party. That's the way they were. You know, they, they love to do stuff like that. At this point, Larry began to transition to dentistry and really distance himself from the business. He had managers and people running it for him. Larry took a big step back. You got to understand at this point, I pretty much have outsourced almost everything I do. I have two partners, and they do the day-to-day operations. If there's a problem, someone's going to call me, and I'm going to go out to some type of payphone and call them and take care of that. But I think I'm at a low-risk level. You really think that everyone that's been busted so far, I've been able to control and take care of, and there hasn't been consequences. Obviously, my wife wanted me to get out, but... No one else wants you to get out, you know. Everyone you're dealing with, they're paying for their houses. They're buying nice things. They're, you know, they're living a good lifestyle. And uh, so to cut all that off, the other major worry that I really, really concentrated on was I knew that people would continue doing things with or without me. He was, I think, at that point in his life, serious about becoming a dentist and imagined himself 
transitioning out of drug dealing completely into a successful dental practice and, in fact, used a lot of his earnings to set himself up very comfortably in a dental practice, which is, you know, most people coming out of medical school or dental school in particular, you know, find it's a crowded market and it's pretty difficult to establish yourself in your own practice coming right out of school. Larry basically bought all of the expensive equipment that Dennis needed, hired people, set himself up in an office in Northeast Philadelphia, and began really from the get-go a fairly busy, lucrative practice as a dentist. He had committed to dentistry and was trying to find the exit from the cocaine empire he'd built. Larry certainly had promised his wife on a number of occasions that he was going to get out of dealing drugs. And I think at some level he wanted to, but, you know, the individuals that he had associated himself with from David Ackerman to Mark Stewart were people who he could not completely trust. And he couldn't find anybody who was as diligent and careful about doing that as he was. So in a way I felt Larry found himself at a certain point trapped by the dangers of turning the operation over to anyone else. The problem is, I'm convinced if they do them without me, they're not going to do them as smart, and they're going to get busted, and it's going to reflect back to me. So how do you get over that quandary or dilemma? You know, it's a problem. How are you going to safely exit without the tail, is what in the medical field they call it. The tail in medical means if someone sues you for malpractice later on. You know, it's a, you have to put away money for that. What sign is the same thing with drug dealing? Despite his concerns, Larry focused on dentistry and his wife, who was now pregnant with their first child. He delegated the drug business to his partners, and as far as his so-called legitimate investments, those were under the supervision of Mark Stewart. But Larry was starting to see some red flags there, too. Mark keeps borrowing from one company, like the record company, to pay off another company. He's, you know, I just see that after putting in maybe two and a half million dollars, I see this isn't going anywhere. Plus, I'm doing more things on my own. I don't need Mark. I'm in my dental practice. I'm done with Mark as far as I'm concerned. I don't need checks from him anymore. I just kind of write that money off in my head and hope that he can do okay on his own. So I decided to stop giving Mark money. So Mark's hurting for money. And I get this call once from him, turn on the radio, and they got the arenas on fire. So I'm just kind of shocked, and I go in to see him. And he tells me that he's going to collect on the insurance, that the fire department happened to be going to another fire and drive by this thing and see flames coming out and go in and stop it and see 55-gallon drums of some type of fuel in there. And I just can't believe he could be this stupid, you know. I just was, like, kind of shocked. You know, I, I thought that... Damn, Dave and I could have done a better job than this. How stupid could you be? And, uh, and it gets worse. As the arena fire was under investigation for potential arson, WMOT Records started receiving complaints from its most popular songwriters. So what happened was, you know, the song started becoming successful first in Philadelphia and then eventually nationally and then internationally as well. And uh, the song was doing well. And we realized, uh, you know, the money that we were getting didn't seem to match up with how well the song was doing. 
So Frankie and I started, you know, receiving some monies and they, they made up statements, but they were, they were phony statements. They weren't, we didn't see the original statements. We wanted to get copies of the, the original statements. And once we did that, we then got access to the statements which show that the song was making an enormous amount of money and we were seeing hardly any of it. WMOT, they filed for bankruptcy and then that stopped the funds that we had been getting. The arena fire plus the royalties complaint caused the investigators to look closely at Mark Stewart and WMOT's bankruptcy filing. The case was assigned to an agent named Chuck Reed. Next on Wolves Among Us. A criminal who knows who Chuck Reed was, who learned that he was on his case, should pack up his bags and leave town immediately. I drove out to Larry's house and I said to him, dude, I'm quitting. You need to quit too. Our time is up. You know, everybody was earning. Everybody loved Larry. And and that's the way it goes until you, uh, everybody wants to be king until the pressure's on. Thank you for listening to Wolves Among Us, a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13. Story created by Cadence 13, along with Matthew Hazara Davis and Steve Seidel. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge of Cadence 13. Co-written by Matthew Hazara Davis, Lloyd Lockridge, and Steve Seidel. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Chris Basil. Narrated by me, Steve Seidel. Produced by Ian Mont and Margot Gray. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales and operations, and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schupp, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.